Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Alexia Stokes of the Botany and Plant Modeling Lab in Montpelier, France. This podcast features Alexia's talk on improving knowledge of mechanical stability by considering local environmental conditions. It was originally presented at the 2013 ISA International Conference in Toronto, Canada. So thanks for that introduction. Um, you can hear from my accent that I'm not French, but I have lived in uh, France for about 20 years. I think I'll come down where Frank was, because then I can see what's happening on the, on the screen there. Now, uh, for those of you who've seen me talk before, you know that I like to put in a disclaimer when I'm talking about tree biomechanics, um, because unlike uh, Frank Rin, who's a physicist, and uh, Carl Nicholas, uh, I'm not a physicist or a mechanical engineer um, or a modeler, and I'm really, really bad at mathematics. Barbie is better at mathematics than I am, and you will not see a single equation in my talk. But <laughs> that's the first time anybody's applauded me for being bad at mathematics. <laughs> biomechanics, um, I can use biomechanics as a tool to help me understand the way trees behave they do and to describe in a quantitative way what I can see intuitively, because I'm a woman and so intuition is very important for me. Now, um, the first paper on whole tree biomechanics, taking into account uh, the roots, the stem, the branches, and the soil, was written about 50 years ago by A.I. Fraser at the Forestry Commission in Scotland. Um, so written in 1962. And uh, since then, there have been hundreds of papers, chapters, books on biomechanics. But um, today I'd like to talk about which ones have really driven the field forwards and which ones are red herrings. Now, because I'm English, I do like detective stories, in particular Agatha Christie. And so um, I like to think of uh, scientific research as a detective story with red herrings and some big clues that push scientific research forward. So today I'll be talking about those red herrings and those clues. Now, the first red herring is that biomechanics is hard. It's not hard. We all do biomechanics every day. Um, it's quite intuitive. Ooh. What's happening there? Okay, I think I have to go up here, because this is a film, and I think I have to go up here to put the film on. Now, this is my daughter, and I asked my daughter, when she was four, to swing off this branch here. 
And in my head, I looked at the curvature of the branch and the diameter of it. Now the question is, will she or will she not break that branch? Again, bring, bring. So there she's going for a swing. Yes, oh, it looks like the branch might be breaking. Oh, I don't know. Will she fall off and break her leg? <laughs> no, she doesn't. Phew. I'm not a bad mother. So biomechanics isn't hard because we are using it every day, but what is hard about biomechanics is putting numbers to it and providing an assessment. That's the difficult bit, especially if you're an arborist and children's lives depend on it. Uh, I'm getting all lost there, there we go. So I have a question for you to think about during my talk. I'll give you the answer at the end of the talk. Now, I'd like you to take a look at these trees here. Oh, this is uh, Fraxinus pensylvanica. It's growing in the Morton Arboretum in Illinois. There's a stand of trees there. There's no dominant prevailing wind direction. What I'd like you to think about is in this picture here, you can see this tree is being winched over by, by Jake Miesbauer. He might be here today. This is Ed Gilman's PhD student. There he is. That's the guy winching this tree over. Thank you, Jake. And I'd like you to think about where the tree might break as Jake is pulling it over. Is it going to break up here in the stem, in the stem root base, or, or will it overturn down here in the root system? And uh, we've got a clue here. These trees are growing in a dense stand next to an open field. So if you want to understand biomechanics intuitively, you need to consider a tree's ecological context. Or in other words, why do trees grow where they do? And there was a, a Dutch group who studied, uh, who asked this question. They studied uh, 30 tree species growing in the Bolivian rainforest. And this is the guy down. He looks a bit scared, actually. This is Van Gelder, and this is him doing the work. I don't know why he looks a bit scared, but anyway. <laughs> so what they did was they measured wood density of these 30 tree species growing at different places in the canopy, different places in the forest. And here we're defining wood density as a dry mass of a volume of wood over an equal mass of a volume of water. If you have trees with a very low density, like balsa wood, you have a very weak wood. And here you can see that the, uh, the cell walls are very thin and there are big lumens. And that makes a very weak wood. But it's cheap for the tree to construct. It's easy, fast for the tree to construct. But if you have a high density wood, like here ebony, it's a very strong wood, but it's much more expensive for the tree to construct. And here you can see there's lots of the cell walls are much thicker and the lumens are smaller. And that makes a very high density wood. What Van Gelder and his colleagues found was that in the tall, sun-loving and short-lived pioneer species up here, they wanted to grow quickly towards the canopy. And so they had low density wood and that was that made it easier for the tree to grow fast. With the shorter, shade-tolerant understory trees, their wood was more dense, and so that was good for them because that meant they resisted failure from debris-like branches and fruits falling on top of them. And finally, the taller, long-lived tree species, which grow in, uh, come in at the end of the succession phases, 
and uh, take their place high up in the canopy. They had very dense woods. They could keep their place in the canopy, and they were also more resistant to wind loading. But if we take a tree out of its ecological context and put it into another environment, does it behave in the same way? Well, this is a, another red herring. Uh, I'll explain why in a moment. Um, because most of the work on tree biomechanics has probably been on, on tree stability, I should say, on tree stability and tree anchorage. Most of this work's been carried out in Britain over the last 50 years. And a lot of the research has been performed on Sitka spruce. And the reason why it's a red herring is because, as my good friend uh, Roland Enos from the University of Manchester says, Sitka spruce is not a real tree. And the reason why he says that is because Sitka spruce is supposed to be grown in North America on nice deep soils where it is actually, it becomes a real tree and very, very impressive, beautiful trees. But what we do to poor old Sitka spruce in Britain is that we tend to grow it on the tops of mountains, on hillsides, on bogs where nothing else will grow. We're really, really horrible to this poor tree. And Sitka spruce um, would like a much deeper root system. Because it rains so much in Britain, the soils get very, very waterlogged. And these roots here can't grow downwards. They become asphyxiated by all the water in the soil. So it has this very, very shallow root system. And there are huge, huge losses in Britain because we, we put this tree everywhere. But there are so many storms. Britain's one of the windiest countries in the world. We've had huge economic losses because we keep on putting Sitka spruce in the places where nothing else will grow. Nevertheless. A lot of work has been done on Sitka spruce, and one of the best papers on tree root anchorage was written um, by Mike Coots in 1986, and uh, really pushed the field forward. Now, what Mike did, he carried out a series of winching tests on Sitka spruce, and uh, so he basically just uh, attached a cable to the top of the tree and pulled the tree over, and he estimated different components of anchorage through these winching tests. So as you winch a tree over, the first thing that resists overturning is the weight of the root soil plate here. The next thing that happens is that you have soil sheared on the windward side of the tree, as you're pulling the tree this way. You're having soil sheared underneath and on the windward side of the tree. Next thing that happens is you have these roots here in tension on the windward um, side of the tree. Uh, they're very strong, and they're holding the tree up. But once they break, the final thing that happens is that you have these leeward roots here. They're held in compression and bending. And they're the final thing holding the tree up. Now, Mike Coots calculated um, the percentage of each of these components of anchorage. And what he found was that the most important component of anchorage in these trees were the roots in tension. Here, they provided 60% of the anchorage. Can you think why the roots in tension might provide so much anchorage? Carl Nicholas said it this morning in his talk. He was talking cellulose. cellulose, that's right. Wood is full of cellulose. If you have wood in tension, it's much, much stronger 
than it is when it's held in compression. It's three, wood is three times stronger in tension than when it's held in compression. And of course, wood is much, much stronger than soil. The next most important component of anchorage uh, was the weight of the root soil plate here. There were two other, the other two components, the soil shearing here and the leeward roots here, they didn't provide much anchorage at all. They only provided about 10% of anchorage, of the resistance to anchorage. So the most important roots were, uh, were those roots in tension. Now, if we go back to this, this paper here by Fraser, Written, it, written in 1962, the concluding sentence of this paper says, it is a fundamental principle of soil mechanics that an increase in soil moisture decreases the soil strength and must therefore be expected to influence tree resistance to inthrow. So he wrote that in 1962, but it's taken 50 years before anybody's uh, produced a very good scientific study of what water does to tree root anchorage. And that was by a Japanese group here. Here's a lady, Kana Kamimura, who did her PhD on this subject. What Kana did was she added water to the roots and soil of trees that she then pulled over. She added water to the top of the soil here, and also she added in a different set of experiments water underneath the root soil plate here. What she found was that tree root anchorage increased significantly when you add water to inside the root soil plate because the weight of the plate increases. I lost my pointer. Uh, if you add water to below the root soil plate, you decrease anchorage because roots can slip out of the soil more easily and soil cohesion is decreased. Yeah, I have this. This is a scary pointer. Can burn your retina with this. Okay. I think it's illegal and probably in the States. I'm not sure. It's somewhere. Did it come from Hong Kong or somewhere? I don't know. But. I'll try not to use that anyway. So where the water goes is important for anchorage. Now, I have another question to ask you. Uh, it's about this, uh, this picture. Now, there was a, in 1999, there was a big storm. There were actually two storms which ravaged Europe. There were huge, huge economic losses. There were millions of trees fallen, down, fallen over. It happened at Christmas time. And I was really unfortunate. I was in Scotland during the storm. I missed it. it these two storms just swept across France, and I missed these two huge storms, and I was really disappointed. I came back, I flew back the day after the storms, and I was at the airport, and I saw this newspaper, this, uh, the, the first page of the newspaper, Libération, which is a famous newspaper in France, and I saw this wonderful photograph um, where we have half the trees on the left side of the road which have fallen over, and the trees on the right side of the road which haven't fallen over, I think they're London plane trees, and that's the little post office van um, that you can see going up the road there, and I think the, the, the French Postal Service actually used this as, a, as an advert to, to say how good their postal service was. 
Anyway, so my question to you is, that you can think about for a few minutes is, can you think why the trees on the left-hand side of the road fell over, but the trees on the right-hand side of the road didn't? And um, the clue here is a road. There is a road in between the two trees. Don't, don't tell me the answer already in a few minutes. <sighs> is that the same group that Frank was talking about earlier? Um, <laughs> Um, so if trees are growing in a windy environment, they will undergo, undergo certain growth processes to help resist mechanical failure. And this is my, my nice photograph of a windswept tree. Um, these, this is taken in, um, off Vancouver Island, at Pacific Rim National Park. And uh, we've got the, the sea over here, and you can see these, these trees are nicely windswept here. Now, the process by which um, trees change shape uh, when they're subjected to wind loading has been given a, a nice long word, because that's what scientists like to do. And this word is thigmomorphogenesis. Uh, it was Mark Jaffe in 1973 who invented this term from the Greek word thigmo, to touch, and morphogenesis from the Latin, to change shape. And he defines sigmomorphogenesis as uh, a process where he, d he d uses it to describe morphological modifications and growth responses in plants caused by touching, shaking, bending, rubbing, shock, wind loading, etc. Now, there are different things that happen as a tree grows in the wind. And the first experiment that was carried out on sigmomorphogenesis was performed by uh, Max Jacobs in 1954 in Australia. And what he did was he guided trees, Pinus radiata, they were quite young trees. They were only a few years old. He guided trees for two years. So the guide trees couldn't move in the wind. And he also had some control trees uh, which could move in the wind. After two years, he took down the, the guy ropes and he had a look to see what happened. And he found that in the control trees, which weren't guyed, the roots were much thicker than in the trees which had been guyed. And then fortunately, luckily for him, there was a big, big windstorm and all the trees which had been guyed all fell over during the storm and the control trees stayed upright. You can also... Um, carry out experiments using shaking machines on trees. This is a photograph of an experiment that I did in my PhD, which was many years ago. Uh, this is a flexing machine. This is, this is Sitka spruce. We're all Sitka spruce here. We do like to torture it in Britain. And what we have here, we have a motor attached to bars here. And the bars are moving in two directions, um, pushing the trees in two directions. And we can also have um, wind tunnels. So here we have uh, uh, fans blowing wind onto these. Uh, here we have sick spruce and larch uh, here. And they're growing in this wind tunnel here. And you can, you can quantify quite nicely what happens to these trees in these experiments. What usually happens is that if you have trees growing in a, windy, uh, in a wind tunnel, the trees at the front of the tunnel here, they're getting most of the wind here. They're shorter than trees further along the tunnel. Trees are also usually thicker 
um, as well as being shorter, they're usually thicker if they grow in the wind. And if you do shake trees or flex trees in two different directions only, for example, um, this is a, a Pinus taida, what's that, loblolly pine, which has been shaken in two directions only, you can see you get this nice um, oval-shaped cross-section of a stem here, and what compared to the control, which is nice and round here. And what's actually happening is the tree is laying down more wood here and here to make the tree more rigid here and here. Frank, Frank Rin was talking about cross-sections, so here the tree knows exactly what to do, and he's putting, more down, putting down more wood here and here to increase the cross-section and make itself more rigid. And there's been a lot of nice work by Frank Toluski on this subject. You can also have, as Carl showed this morning, flag-shaped trees like this. Uh, when they grow in prevailing winds with wind from one side only, that makes a nice, more streamlined shape. You can have bigger leaves on this side of the tree compared to this side of the tree, and you can get this eccentric stem growth as well in these trees. Now, if you have a, a permanent displacement from the vertical, you can have reaction wood forming. In conifers, this reaction wood is called compression wood because it forms on the compression side of a leaning tree. And here we have this little cross section here. You can see that the cells are rounder with thicker cell walls compared to normal wood. And they have more lignin as well compared to normal wood because lignin is strong in compression. And this wood works by helping push the tree upright uh, back into its normal position or to reorient it into a different position. And you can see here uh, bands of compression wood. I think, you can, yeah, you can see this like slightly darker red color here. That's bands of compression wood. And here, but you can see when, quite clearly when you cut trees down. In um, broadleaf species, the reaction wood is called tension wood because it forms on the side of a leaning tree held in tension. Here, um, here we have um, the cross-section of cells of tension wood. These are very, very thick cell walls here. They're full of cellulose. That makes the wood really, really strong in tension. And tension wood works by pulling the tree upright into a different position. And now we come to another red herring, because if you read the textbooks about compression wood and tension wood, most of the textbooks say that reaction wood, compression wood, tension wood works it by pushing the tree upright into a vertical position because the tree wants to be in a vertical position and to grow upright and straight. It's not true. A lot of trees are quite happy growing being bendy, uh, especially if they want to grow to the sunlight. For example, reaction wood is useful to reorient a tree into a different spatial position. We go back to these Fraxinus pensylvanica here. They're leaning right out of the stand here towards the sunlight. They want to get to that sunlight. And they're deliberately growing that way. They're, they've got their neighbors here, which are upright, because they, they're reaching the sunlight here. But these ones are really bendy. But they want to be bendy. They're happy being bendy. They're mechanically stable. And here we have um, 
uh, fig tree growing out of a wall in Florence in, in Italy. And this tree is going down, all the way down, and then, then out and then back up again. And, and thank you to Francesco for pointing that tree out to me. Um, figs are very good at that kind of thing, very phototropic. They want to grow to the sunlight. So trees do not necessarily want to grow straight. I'm going to talk a little bit about roots. Roots, of course, uh, we heard from Carl this morning that roots um, grow in different shapes when they're growing, uh, when trees are growing in the wind. But they can also have different kinds of uh, root architecture. Now, this is uh, going back to this wind tunnel here. So we've got fans blowing wind over these trees here. What these trees did on the windward side of the tree, they put down more, more roots and more branched roots, which were thinner. I'm just showing this, uh, this logo here of a conference I went to in 96. And the logo of the conference shows brilliantly what happens when you grow a, a tree in the wind. So you have roots on the tension side of the tree, nice and branched. What happens to roots on the compression side of the tree? They're much thicker, and they're not as branched. And there aren't many roots um, perpendicular to the wind direction because these roots are rotating and they're not very good for anchorage. So the best roots are the roots that are in tension. Now, this is another um, picture that was taken from a newspaper. We were very proud after the storm because we had loads of um, articles in, in uh, French newspapers. And this is from Le Monde, which is the most famous newspaper in France. They came and interviewed us and asked us about our work. And uh, they made this nice, uh, this nice sketch for us of uh, what happens to adult trees um, when, they, when they fall over in windstorms. So uh, what happened here, what we did here, we were looking at 50-year-old uh, Pinus pinaster growing in a stand which had been damaged in the 1999 storm. And half the trees had fallen over, and half the trees had remained standing up. And we wondered why half the trees had fallen over and half the trees had remained standing. We looked at different parts of the tree, the branches, the stem, the root system. And what we found was it in trees which fell over, which are these ones here, they had asymmetric root systems. So we're looking down on the root system here. We've got the wind direction coming from here. It's a, it comes from the west in that part of France. And the trees which fell over didn't have many roots on the windward side of the tree. But the trees that remained standing, they had a much better root system with roots all the way around, and they had roots on the windward side of the tree. So, so again, what we've seen in young trees, we also saw in adult trees. And in the same trees, we looked also to see what was happening um, in a profile view of the root systems. And we have a sketch uh, of what was happening. These trees here remain standing after the windstorm. And these trees here were uprooted. And you, we can see that there are more sinkers, these roots here, in the trees which remained standing up. The trees which fell over didn't have many sinker roots. So sinker roots are also very important for anchorage. So now to that table over there. Why did the trees on the left fall over? You, I heard it before. 
Yes. Well, there's two things happening. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. You, you, you'd win the carrot, but I think Frank's taken them away. Um, this, the soil's a bit saturated here. It's very saturated here, but we can also see that the soil is saturated here. But what's happening is here, the wind came from this direction, and because of the road here, these trees here growing very close to the road, their roots in tension couldn't develop properly because the road would have hindered the de development of those windward roots. So they didn't have very good windward roots. But these trees here will be able to spread out their, their roots to this side here. So that's probably the reason why those trees, those trees remain standing. So it does seem that uh, a tree's life is composed of a series of trade-offs. It's never optimized for one single function. So a tree can be prepared for all sorts of eventualities, as long as its local environment doesn't change suddenly. It's very important that the local environment does not change. And we can see, unfortunately, an example of what happened uh, when you do change the local environment of a tree. Um, this is something, this is, we had a storm in northern France in 2003. It was the middle of summer. Nobody was expecting it in a, a park uh, near Strasbourg. And uh, there was a concert in the park that night with uh, several hundred people there. And uh, it suddenly started raining, getting windier and windier. So people went to shelter under this giant plane tree. Uh, the plane tree was 40 meters tall, it weighed over 70 tons, it was over 100 years old, and unfortunately it, it fell down onto uh, a hundred, several hundred people uh, and injured, seriously injured over 100 people, and 13 people were killed from one tree. Now, it was a tree, it was very healthy, had a huge root soil plate. It had been um, the arborists from the, the city council had been the year before. They'd done the expertise on the tree. The tree was healthy, so everything was fine. Nobody could have predicted that tree would fall over. So what happened? Well, if we take a look at a, a map of the park here, this is the tree here where the red arrow is. Um, the light green and the, these green here are different wooded areas in the park. Now the brown area that we see around here are um, zones of woods which had been destroyed in the 1999 storm. So all these trees had been blown over or broken four years previously. And we've got some buildings here. Now, um, some French colleagues, um, Dupont and Brunet, used a wind um, map, a model, for mapping wind intensity uh, the day of the storm. So they used this uh, model to simulate um, wind intensity and direction at a height of three meters above the ground on the day of the storm. And here you can see the different arrows. The direction of the arrows is the direction of the wind, and the length of the arrows is the, uh, um, the, wind, in, the wind speed. So what you can see is that we're getting the arrows coming over here, they're changing direction, and they're going backwards around the tree here. 
And this is, we've got a high level of turbulence in all these zones where the trees fell over in the 1999 storm. So what actually happened, although the plane tree was healthy, because its neighboring trees had fallen over in 1999, turbulence occurred around the tree, and it was not acclimated to the new windy environment. It, no fig more morphogenesis had had time to occur in the four years from when its neighbors fell over. We live in a very fragmented landscape. There's lots of turbulence, there's lots of wind corridors, and I think this is really a direction where we could do a lot of work in the future um, to produce wind maps for managers of parks and urban forests, and this is a field which is wide open. Now, we can't talk about biomechanics intuitively without uh, thinking about Klausmatic. Um, I, I worked with Klausmatic for a year in 1994 when we were both wee young things, and it was the most interesting experience. I think if you, you, you probably all know Klausmatic, and if you've seen him speak, you'll never forget. Uh, you'll never forget him. A very um, interesting character. And he's done great work. Uh, in pushing the field forward in biomechanics and making it easier to understand. Nevertheless, there are one or two things, one or two red herrings in his work, which uh, I'm just going to talk about. Now, Klaus's big theory is that a tree is not, is a tree is a chain of equal links. So you have incoming wind transferred from the crown down the stem into the root ball and from there into the ground. Well, that's right, but a tree is not a chain of equal links and it is not fully optimized for mechanical stability. And that's, uh, Carl touched on this this morning as well. And the reason why a, tr a tree is not a chain of equal links, I'm going to just talk about one experiment which shows that. This is some work um, done by the German group. Um, and what they did was they looked at branch mechanics of different um, salix species. And in particular, they looked at the branch mechanics of salix fragilis, which is a riparian species, subjected to flooding quite often, and salix appendiculata, a, sub a subalpine species, subjected quite often to snow loading. They performed tests whereby they measured the force necessary to pull branches off trees. And what they found was that in Salix fragilis, which is the river species subjected to flooding, it was very easy to pull the branches off the, the tree. And they looked at, uh, they used um, microscopy to look at the, the failure surface of where the branch broke off the stem. They found it this nice, smooth, failure surface, and then they found that um, the wood was very brittle. When they looked at Salix appendiculata, which is the subalpine species, often subjected to snow loading, they found that the branches were much more difficult to pull off the tree, the wood was stronger, and the branch was very flexible, very bendy. And uh, they got this rough failure surface here. It was difficult to pull the branches off. You can see that these, these fibers were interlocking, holding the branches on very, very well. The wood wasn't brittle. 
So why is that? Well, if you think of the ecological context, Salix fragilis is a species subjected to flooding. It's much better to lose a few branches easily than for the whole body of the tree to be dragged off down the river during flooding. And this is what Carl Nicholas was talking about this morning when he was talking about cherry trees. It's better to use a f lose a few branches to save the main body of the tree. It reminds me, uh, I can't remember, I was trying to remember the name of the film as, he, as Carl Nicholas was talking about that this morning. It reminds me of that film where there's got that climber who falls down into a canyon and he cuts off his arm. Uh, 72 hours or 107 hours, something like that. It would have been much better for him to have a brittle arm so he could cut it off easily to save his main body. But in Salix appendiculata, uh, th this tree is subjected to snow loading. The branches are bent down in the snow for several months a year. So it's better for these branches to be more flexible and in the springtime to grow back up. And something else that happens with Salix fragilis is that these um, branches that fall off into the river um, can also uh, reproduce vegetatively further along the river. They're cuttings and the, the, the plant can reproduce further along the river. So trees can benefit from weak links in the chain. Can we use this knowledge in tree risk assessment? Well, something else, uh, another red herring that I came across is that a pruned tree is a more mechanically sound tree. Now, um, there is a technique called wind sailing which is used, which is supposedly makes trees safer if they grow in a windy environment. And uh, what happens is that some of the branches are removed in order to let wind pass through the canopy of a tree. And this is supposed to reduce movement and strain on the tree. I found a nice internet site about this as well. Now, some of you might have seen Ken James's talk last year and uh, what Ken James talking about, he was talking about damping, which again is what Carl talked about this morning, damping mechanics, and branches actually provide a very good damping effect as the tree is moving around in the wind. If you cut off all the branches of a tree, then that stem will whip around in the wind and be much more likely to break than if it had its branches. So you have to be very careful about pruning, and I think we can see an example of this. Um, if I do this, and I found this on YouTube. This is a nice film. This is a, a director storm, and um, so thanks to the person who put it onto YouTube. Now here we have a little salix tree. We can see that we're getting this nice flag shape as it's bending over in the wind. You can see all the, the, the crown going to the lee side of the tree. But I'd like you to keep an eye on what happens over here. Now we've got some... Oh, I know the guy's going over. We've got some big trees up here which aren't moving around much in the wind at all. But take a look at this one behind. It looks like it's missing some big limbs and that tree is all over the place. And yet these big ones here are hardly moving. I'm wondering if that tree there has had some of its big branches, some of its major limbs removed from it. Even though it's only half the size of the other ones, it's all over the place. So the outside branches of a tree can divert some wind from the center of the tree 
acts as a buffering shield. If you overthin the tree, over prune it, you can make the remaining branches more vulnerable to failure now that they're isolated. And as we've seen, trees know much better than us how to acclimate better, how to acclimate to windy conditions. So we're coming to the end of the talk. Where will that tree break? Jake, you're not allowed to answer this. So just to remind you, Praxis Pennsylvanica, about 50 years old, this tree was very inclined. It was growing out to the sunlight here. Got a dense stand here. Got a field here. Let's take a look at Jake in action. So poor old Jake's in the firing line. We all moved away. We were like uh, 30 yards. We just left him to it. Not very strong, Jake, are you? What about uh, the roots? Where is, where is it going to break? 3.7. It's a trick question. It's a trick question because it doesn't break. This is a chewing gum tree. I mean, Jake, he could, he could have done that all day and it would not have broken. I, uh, these are very odd trees, yeah, the these ones tree. here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, not really come across trees like that before. Um, I think because they were growing out towards the sunlight, they were very phototropic. They would have had reaction wood, I don't know where in the tree, but it made them very, very bendy. I think if we pulled the tree the other direction, it would have broken probably somewhere up the stem really easily. Um, no, there, there were, I don't think it was snow and ice loading. It might have been, but it was um, quite a strange phenomenon where the trees were growing out to the light and you could see the branches growing out. Sorry. Okay, so maybe snow and ice loading did also um, make those trees more bendy, but yes, they'd probably been very good at uh, surviving wind lo uh, snow loading in the winter. Sorry. Leaves and water through a full leaves and water through the full crown usually bring it down just as far as a bit of snow sitting on top. Because once the water's in there, it weighs way more than a bit of frozen snow. Yes. Yes. But I think there's lots of interesting things happening to these trees. Am I five? Oh, okay. Okay. I'm almost finished. So I think that the, uh, the ashes need for sunlight was more important than its need to grow vertically. It was happy growing out to the side and it probably would have had a different wood anatomy to a straight tree. I'm not sure where the reaction would be. I'm looking at it at, that at the moment. Now, um, what is governing all these tree, uh, what is governing tree growth and all these changes that we're seeing in the tree? Well, I like to, uh, I like Sprengel's theory. And Sprengel, in, 19, in 1787, said that uh, he invented the theory of minimum. The theory of minimum means that plant growth is limited by the essential nutrient at the lowest concentration. And what he means by that is if you have a pool of nutrients, growth is limited by the nutrient in the shortest supply. 
even if all the other nutrients are abundant. But I like this theory because I think it doesn't necessarily apply to nutrients. I think it can also apply to different things. It could be, for example, the mechanical environment or the physical environment. And I think that at any given point in time, a tree's growth will be regulated by its biggest need, nutritive, mechanical, or physical. So if there is little wind, but light is limiting, a shade intolerant tree will grow towards the light patches in the can canopy, even if it is a mechanical risk for the tree. For example, in this cecropia, growing in the Amazon forest, it has a very, grows very, very, very tall. It has a very small diameter, it's very, very thin. And the slightest wind, it would, break, it would blow over and the branches would break. But it does that because it's a pioneer tree, wants to get up to the canopy, there's not much wind, so he's going to take the risk. So I've had arborists say to me, well, what do I do then? What do I choose? I've got to think about everything when I choose a tree species to plant somewhere. Well, I think you just have to think a little bit carefully about what species you want to choose to plant somewhere or how to manage a tree somewhere you have to think about. So species, check out some background information about that. Will the, that species like the soil where you want it to grow? What about the wind environment and the light environment? What is the ecological niche of that species? What is the ecotype or where does the tree material come from? And thinking about all these different things can explain many behavioral aspects of trees. And my take home message would be, if you want to think about the behavior of a tree mechanically, where you want it to grow, or if you want to put a tree somewhere, you have to observe it, and then you can make your hypothesis about how it will behave. Thank you very much. This concludes Alexia Stokes' talk on urban trees and mechanical stability. If you would like to learn more about tree biomechanics, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the Tree Biomechanics DVD. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store and select Online CEU Quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.